0: A few years ago, two men met to discuss an idea they'd had for a tidal energy project.
1: The idea called for an array of tunnels, rather than the more traditional lagoons. But essentially, as the tide comes in and goes out, you can draw the energy off it.
0: It was a fantastic idea – free energy for as long as the moon orbits the Earth. But there was one tiny detail standing in the way of the project.
1: The tunnels.
0: The men were told that even though they needed identical tunnels in the hundreds, there was no cost saving per drive.
1: 200 drives of the exact same spec? 200 times the price, thank you very much.
0: One of the men had a background in the printing industry and could not believe that this was the way things had to be.
1: There must be economies of scale. There must be ways to do something hundreds of times and benefit from that process.
0: All of a sudden, they had a new challenge on their desks. How to push the tunnelling industry so hard that it can no longer be considered an evolution, it has to be considered a revolution.
1: So this is what they set out to do.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast, the official podcast of the British Tunnelling Society. I'm Alex Connicker.
1: And I'm Ryan Owen.
0: In this episode, we are talking to a startup that hopes to change the way the tunnelling industry has done things.
1: At least the last few thousand years.
0: Conventional process has us excavate a hole, then construct a tunnel lining.
1: Lots of people working in an unfinished tunnel, lots of risk.
0: Most of the latest industry disruptors do not deviate from this. It's more of the same, only faster or cheaper.
1: Sticking to evolution again.
0: But the company we are speaking with today has a different idea. What if you build the tunnel before you excavate?
1: They hope to see all of the traditional benefits, time and cost improvements. But as well as the unique approach, they are bringing in a unique team.
0: None of them are traditional tunnellers.
1: In fact, that is by design. They hope to gain knowledge from adjacent industries, hone it with the technical advisory board from the tunneling industry, and change the underground construction space forever.
0: So, let's meet one.
2: I guess my my grandfather was a an aeroplane designer. He worked for the um, the Bristol Aeroplane Company, B.A.O.C., in Filton for. For many years, and I guess that's that was in it was in the blood from there. My my father, albeit not a direct engineer, he was a uh, I guess an engineer by proxy. He he was a submariner. So when you're uh, under the sea, you have to make things work. Um, you can't surface and uh, and ask for help. So yeah, I guess it's uh, it's in the blood of, of, of sorts of there.
0: This is Patrick Lane Knott. He is the director of engineering at HyperTunnel which made its grand entrance to the industry at the BTS conference in autumn 2021.
2: The real passion was in and around motorsport. My uncle was a um, a sort of an avid private racer and spent a lot of weekends in my teenage years uh, supporting him uh, and that sort of grew my love. My dad was always very passionate about motorsport as well. So again, that was, I guess it all rubbed off
1: Patrick studied mechanical engineering at Reading, and his first job was at British Rail Engineering Limited.
2: Thrown right in the deep end because they hadn't hired anybody until the, the year that the, the sort of graduate year that I, I'd been there for five years um, because they hadn't had any orders, and then suddenly there was this massive influx of orders. So lots and lots of uh, responsibility at an early age and learning on the, on the go and all that sort of stuff, which was yeah exciting times, and, uh, and I learned a lot during that period.
0: But Patrick's love of motorsport was too strong a pull.
2: I heard about uh, um, a master's uh, degree that was starting at Cranfield University, and Cranfield have always had a, a good uh, relationship with motorsport in general. They, they do a lot of the, um, the sort of testing and uh, other um, research on behalf of the FIA and, uh, and uh, the teams as well.
0: Cranfield was setting up a master's in motorsport, engineering and management.
2: So it seemed like a good Uh, such for me to be able to move into what, you know, make my passion a a career, I guess, which is what they always suggest you do. Uh, So so that's exactly what I did. And I did a a, a master's at Cranfield and started working on, well, initially at weekends, and then it became more and more of a full-time job um, working for a Formula 3 team at Silverstone, which is just round the corner, luckily.
0: Then Patrick was offered a role at Williams F1, where he looked after the logging of all the test data you have to do thousands of tiny tests in motorsport, on the brakes and gears and everything to make sure the cars are reliable.
1: In those days, the test team was as big as the race team.
2: I wanted to go racing because that's what I really loved. I was then offered, offered an opportunity to move stateside and work, work for an IndyCar team to actually go racing. Because the, uh, at, at Williams, the, the racing, uh, the, the test team was sort of being wound down because of the regulations as they came in. Opportunity
0: arose in the US and Patrick went racing there for a while.
1: After a few years, Patrick was working for a US-based measurement company, working on a simulator project with McLaren Applied Technologies.
2: So I was working in that simulation, digital twin virtual world, but also with EVs and all this sort of stuff all coming on with the autonomous revolution. So lots and lots of activity and really sort of exciting times. A mutual uh, connection that, that introduced me to uh, Steve Jordan, the co-founder of HyperTunnel, with, uh, with Jeremy Hammond,
0: the other co-founder. These are the two men that had the idea for tunneled tidal power.
2: And I went for, I guess initially it was a, a chat that turned into a very long chat. Um, and uh, yeah, then they then they, they asked me to join them and uh, head up the engineering team. We don't have any tunnellers in our in our in the core engineering team. Um, we do have a. Uh, one peter o Reardon, who chairs our, our our tech board now but um for that first sort of year whilst we were sort of getting the the whole uh, um bringing the concept to life as it were we we didn't have any tunnelers within our midst
0: and that was on purpose a strategy of steve and jeremy the co-founders who decided they wanted to have a blue sky thinking approach clean sheet of paper
2: is to to try and bring the 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 method to life and uh, and that's what we did. So, you know, the team was made up, as I say, people from motorsport, people from the sort of renewable energy space, people from aviation, people from um, academia, um, people from the construction industry, but not tunneling. Um, we had, ge- we got geotechs. So it was, a, it was a, a wide range, even oil and gas. And uh, there, was a, there was a large wide range of, of skill sets and experience with different technologies and techniques that we wanted to try and draw on and do that sort of cross-pollination.
1: The hyper-tunnel argument is that the the state-of-the-art in tunnelling, the TBM, is an amazing, monstrous triumph of mechanical engineering.
0: But just an iteration of earlier machines. There has not been a revolution for a long time.
2: The reality is you still, on a TBM, have to have a bunch of brave people sitting in there driving it um, on a day-to-day basis. And that's, you know, it was brought home to me on a recent visit to, to HS2 where they do have these sort of escape chambers. And it, it sort of threw me back to to my dad in the submarine world, where they have all sorts of training about how, how to get out of a, um, a, a sunken submarine. And they have these deep sea rescue vehicles, deep DSRVs that are sort of mini submarines that go on and, and limp it onto the side and then they can all transfer into it. But, you know, I think reality, all submariners know that the chances of that actually really being successful is is pretty slim. It's uh, I guess, a placebo to make sure that you do go down and, and, and carry on with your job. But uh, no, it was quite sort of a, um, a, a sort of an interesting parallel with these sort of safe boxes that they have on board the TBMs that if there's a problem, they can all run to. So no, it's a, it, the, the dangers are very, very real. And I think if, you know, in this day and age, if there is a better way without having to risk people, we should do it.
0: Following a fairly intensive learning period, setting up key industry relationships, testing, they had developed a new system, enough to bring it to the industry, and announced it to much interest at the BTS conference in 2021.
1: And the system is broken up into four phases. First comes the preparation phase.
2: And this really is where we're gathering as much data and information about the the tunnel site, where the tunnel is going, the geology in and around the uh, the area and, and really wanted to try and get as much detail as possible. That includes borrowing technology from the oil and gas world where we are taking um, a physical core of the whole length of the tunnel. That actually gives us the real ground in our hands to be able to, to really know what's coming up.
0: A full length longitudinal core, rather than guessing the significant locations from surface cores.
2: Then once we've got that core sample, we then line that Um, bore, we can then put our our geophysics tools inside and do a a survey and again, instead of having to to try and reach from the surface to see what's going on in the ground, we're right in in the middle of the ground that we're interested in. So we're developing some technology that allows us to to do those surveys from inside those pipes. Once we've understood a bit more about that geology, we then uh, um, start using uh, horizontal directional drilling technology.
1: Using HDD rigs, they drill a series of bores that mark the profile of the tunnel. And some listeners may not be aware of how much this technology has advanced from the early, primitive farming applications. It is now mature, precise and reliable.
0: Once the bores are complete, they install 280mm HDPE pipes in 13 meter long sticks by back-pulling these from the far end. These pipes allow them access to the full geology of the face and are spaced about one metre apart.
2: So in a similar way to... The old style, before the TBMs, when they, they'd have, have a lot of the navvies all working in the, in the tunnelling world, and they would drop lots of shafts so that the navvies could work on multiple faces to be able to dig the tunnel quickly. What we, what we want to do is to allow access to the whole tunnel length all at the same time to allow our navvies or our bots to go and do their work.
0: Did you catch that part? What Patrick and Hyper Tunnel call their bots, their robots, are set to work.
1: This is phase two of the process, the construction phase. And really, this phase is all about robotics, AI and chemistry.
0: HyperTunnel had entered into a working relationship with Master Builders Construction Chemicals Group early on, working out what chemicals can achieve with a given geology and differing ground conditions.
1: They began to trial a massive range of products to work out what is basically a toolkit to build a tunnel lining.
2: Because we're using the, the chemistry as a as actually building blocks rather than necessarily filling in gaps, which a lot of what 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 grouting is what is, is generally done in in the underground construction. Although obviously there's lots of different different types, but you know fundamentally we're we're using their existing toolset but in a different way. So
0: armed with the latest tunneling chemicals, they unleash the bots
2: and let the swarm go and do their job. So. From the information we gathered in the first phase, we can, we can once we've understood exactly what the geology is and what the ground conditions are, we can then do through a bit of AI and um, uh, data analytics of all that information, we can then decide what chemistry we need to put in the ground at any point to be able to create our structures to get the strength that we need.
0: At this stage, they effectively create a task list for each of these bots. Very small jobs, but like an ant colony or termite mound, Thousands of units with simple tasks to do can work wonders.
2: It suddenly becomes a massive um, game changer as far as the productivity and the efficiency, because if you have a problem with one of those elements, all the rest of them are still working away.
1: So the bots go to their assigned spots, put the necessary chemistry in and form a tunnel.
2: They effectively go ahead and 3D print the structure, the, the the tunnel, in the ground using the pipes uh, as, the, as the access points. And we have some technology we've developed that allows us to penetrate the pipe and deploy the chemistry into the
1: ground uh, without any of the outside
2: getting into the pipes.
1: The pipes are kept as clean as possible so the bots can move around.
0: The bots themselves are two to three metres long, but half a pipe diameter, which allows them to pass one another inside the pipe. The bots also pass signals between one another to communicate with a control room at the surface. They can even communicate with neighbouring pipes.
1: The bots consist of a tractor end to move them, and that is attached to a payload end, which is a flexible element that has all of the interfaces that a tool might need.
2: But the idea is that the, the chassis in the bot itself um, is pretty standard. So you have a tractor with batteries and, and motors and a few sensors and a bit of communication, and then you have the payload at the back, and that bot can then travel Uh, at any point uh, to any point within a pipe and it stops can then lock itself in position and then the payload can then rotate to whatever angle it needs to to be able to do the the job or the task in in turn so that could be drilling through the pipe um, placing uh, um, some chemistry using some of our um, our different techniques and technology we're using it could be surveying in that specific area it could be I'm taking a sample in that particular area, so we might just want to know what's going on outside it. So there's lots and lots of, of different tools that we can drop into that payload bay, but but again, once they're travel, once they're, they're they finish doing their job, they pack down into a half bot size, and then they travel on to the next point in the pipe.
0: The bots are designed to be relatively cheap. HyperTunnel are targeting hundreds of dollars per bot, not thousands.
2: We want to make these bots very, very simple, simple tools, so that they literally have the bare essentials on them so that we can have lots of them for the equivalent price, but they also um, can also be effectively disposable in inverted commas. Obviously we would recycle as much as we can and reuse.
0: As the bots work, 3D printing the structure, everything is being monitored. Volumes, pressures, temperatures, chemistry. Everything is fed back to the control centre to give a real picture of what is going on in the ground, which is fed into a digital twin. A second survey is then undertaken.
1: By the survey bots, of course.
0: Which, combined with the pre-construction scan, gives the team a before and after.
2: And then we have software that can overlay the two, and the difference between the two is effectively the structure that we've created. And so that way we can make sure that we've got a complete... Um, and uh, a and homogeneous structure within the ground that is going to be able and, and capable of taking the loads and, and all the other uh, elements that are required. Once we've got to that stage, we can then start excavating.
1: And this is phase three, excavation.
2: So we go back to our original bore that we'd taken our initial core sample from, in the, which sits in the centre of the this tunnel shell that we've created, that uh, is sort of unconsolidated ground, and... We again use HDD technology to ream that pipe out to uh, as large as is practical, and that provides a space or a a void within the the whole tunnel shell, which means that the ground that hasn't been treated can start to collapse within the, the tunnel shell itself.
0: There are a number of methods HyperTunnel is using in tests to make this happen. For example, sound waves. This and a few other elements of the system are still under wraps, but are expected to be announced soon.
2: But in essence, we're what we're doing, is just helping it fall into the into a slump within
1: the tunnel. The actual excavation isn't really digging; they're just clearing a tunnel that is filled with spoil inside a structurally sound shell.
2: So we have a dragline shield, and this dragline shield is based on a dragline bucket style technology from open cast mining. So again, another example of where we're borrowing techniques and technology that are well proven in other industries and using them in a slightly different way. So we have a shield that is actually dragged through the, the, the tunnel, um, the, it has probes on the front of it that mate up with the pipes that are still sitting in situ. And they're like fingers in a glove, those probes then help the shield to move through the ground and in essence, scoop up all of the, the, the spoil or the, um, the ground, the, the, the unconsolidated ground that's sitting in the tunnel shell.
0: And then it's a case of moving that away from the shield itself. And depending on the size of the tunnel, that can be done in a number of different ways.
2: With either conveyor belts, again, borrowing quick moving techniques that are used in ore mining, where they can move thousands of tonnes an hour, Um, or uh, we can use autonomous trucks. Again, if when you start getting very long lengths, you can use autonomous trucks. There's there's already plenty of those on the market in the mining world um, that are going out and and just relaying um, spoil in and around. So... There's lots and lots of options for, the, for how we get the spoil out. But we're, you know, we're looking for that, that shield and that single pass to be able to get our, our initial structure in place in relatively short time. Uh, and really, it's only limited on how quickly you can get the spoil off site rather than uh, anything else within the hyper tunnel process.
1: Then finally comes the completion phase.
2: This is really just making the, the, the tunnel fit for, for purpose. So if it's it, depending on what it's going to be used for. If it's a transport tunnel, then there might be some uh, lights and uh, other um, other facilities you might want to add in. You might want to add additional linings, waterproofing, that sort of stuff. Again, if it's utilities, uh, the, the requirements will be slightly different, but and again, you can tailor accordingly. And and at, at this point, we, we then collate all of the information and data that we've gathered throughout each of the phases, and that, that in essence, becomes our, our, our package of information that we can use to help uh, assure and sign off the tunnel because we are effectively got a, um, a complete record of all the construction elements and how they've been done. We've got um, visuals within all our surveys and scans. Um, we can also have devices that can go down and take in situ samples of a given area. So there's lots and lots of elements we can bring to be able to give confidence to the to the assurer to to be able to sign the tunnel off. We then bundle all that information up together and then hand that over to the end user of the tunnel because. The reality is that any tunnel being currently built, the chances of it still having the same use within its lifetime is is pretty slim. You know, I I don't think we're going to be driving around in cars necessarily in 100 years time. So uh, certainly not the cars that we recognize now. So the the reality is there'll have to be some infrastructure change within the tunnel itself. And at the moment, uh, the way we do it, because we've got no plans or understanding of existing um, 150 year old tunnels, we have to go and do a massive full survey of that tunnel. Now, wouldn't it be great if you had all that information at your fingertips? So you knew exactly what, where, and when, um, what was going on outside the tunnel, all the sort of elements. That's all wrapped up in that data set that we've created during our process. That can sit with the the operator of the tunnel, so that if they want to put some gantries up in a certain place, they can look at their look at the this data set within a digital twin and say, Yep. We can see that. We can also look at historical data about what's going on in the ground outside. We can deploy sensors from our, from our pipes as well into the ground to be able to monitor live what's going on um, with regard to temperature, pressure, water movement, all the sort of the key elements that you might be interested in if you are operating a, a, a buried asset.
1: So that's the process.
0: Patrick says there has been no one particular technological hurdle that's been most challenging to overcome. It's more been about making existing but very different technologies work together. The bots give it away a little bit, but this is a very automated approach to tunnel
1: construction. That obviously has safety benefits, but even in the control room, the end game is to have as few people there as possible. Bots could even be offloaded from a truck directly into pipes into the tunnel go to the surface to recharge as needed.
0: Human intervention would come into play for overall control and maintenance, replacement, uh, but that's about it, ideally. At the end of a job, the bots could load themselves back onto a truck.
1: HyperTunnel are currently testing a number of their technologies on a network rail site.
2: I described the whole new tunnel creation, but actually you can break down the technique into lots of little sub-products that that are useful to, to industry as, as a standalone item. Um, and one of those uh, that Network Rail has identified is being able to do some repairs on their existing infrastructure. So monitoring what's going on in and around the ground from a pressure perspective, from a volume and all those sort of aspects is absolutely key. So some of the trials we're doing with Network Rail is putting pipes uh, close to a, a, a buried piece of infrastructure. So imagine a Victorian brick line tunnel and we want to be able to demonstrate how we can repair those from the outside rather than the inside so we can deploy chemistry from our our pipes on the outside of a, of a tunnel and do a patchwork a, a patch repair or, or a, a localized repair which will allow them to let their le- keep the trains running because one of the key areas really for for network rail and any any sort of uh, infrastructure, uh, owner, whether it's a bridge tunnel or or even a main, a, a main road, closing the road causes so much disruption it's a real pain. In network rails term, they, they end up having to pay the train operating companies a lot of money to be able to close the line for any given time. So they're looking for ways to be able to keep the, keep the routes open as much as possible, but still affect the, the repair and prolong the life of the, the asset.
0: Patrick is hesitant to predict cost and schedule improvements at this stage. He's modelled them, but he says that he finds them so impressive he wants to wait for more data.
1: In the near term, HyperTunnel's calendar is tests, trials, and analysis. But watch this space.
0: The Tunnelling Podcast is the official podcast of the British Tunnelling Society and a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher, my co-host was Rhea Owen, Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervision by John Young, and our Executive Producer is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find the Tunnelling Podcast on all podcast apps and on our website, tunnelling.reby.media.